Welcome to Haber Bros, a podcast for historic cross-centered Christians. We seek to provide ancient answers to a culture that's forgotten the questions. Thank you for listening this week. If you like what you're hearing or enjoy the show, please share it with a friend and say positive things about us on Twitter and Facebook. This is how podcasts grow. If you haven't yet given us a five-star review, pause what you're doing and please do so. Follow us on Twitter at, at @clergylay, and join our Facebook discussion group. I'm Kirk Haberman, a church musician, and this is my brother Chris, a priest. But more importantly, given the generally bro-y nature of this podcast from its inception, we are breaking new ground today. Christopher Haberman, we have a guest. Yes, we do. Uh, today we are joined by Christina Hitchcock, who is, I hope I'm getting this right, Professor of Practical Theology? No, that's not. That's what the website says. What you are a professor? The website is wrong, and it has been wrong for so long. I'm a professor of theology. Of theology. Okay, that didn't sound right. That's why. That's why I had that proviso. Okay. Uh, I at prefer university... professors of impractical theology myself. <laughs> All theology she is, pro- is practical. <laughs> right. She's professor of theology at the University of Sioux Falls. She attended Geneva College, which is literally down the hill from Kirk's house. Like a a stray basketball rolling out of their driveway might actually make its way to Geneva College. Uh, She received a degree in, get this Kirk, political science. Yeah. And uh, in uh, biblical studies uh, at Geneva. Um, That makes three of us on this podcast today who have bachelor's degrees in political science. So yeah, worthless degrees. Which raises the question, why aren't we talking about Federalist number 10 today? Maybe uh, maybe another day. She attended seminary at Gordon-Conwell where she crossed paths with our former pastor, Paul Cooper. She did her doctoral studies at the University of Aberdeen. Uh, For any South Dakotans listening, that is Aberdeen, Scotland, not South Dakota. (laughs) You know, old school Aberdeen. She returned to Scotland a number of years later when her husband entered a doctoral program at the University of Edinburgh. In 2018, she published The Significance of Singleness, A Theological Vision for the Future of the Church, which is significant not only because it is a largely ignored topic, but also because USF is a teaching college. Um, I'd imagine uh, it's becoming rare every year for, for colleges to not be teaching colleges, but uh, professors at USF teach, uh, I'd imagine, three to four classes per semester, leaving little energy for, for writing. Nevertheless, she published this work, which we're going to talk about later in the show. We have daughters who are the same age and who finally are in the same class at school, which is awesome because that's step two in my 15-step plan to become best friends with Christina. <laughs> I am grateful to know her and even more grateful to, for her to join us today. Christina, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Uh, we've covered some basic biographical details. Would you be willing to tell us a little bit more about yourself? Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's lots of fun to be here. I appreciate it. Um, 
Yeah. So, um, boy, this is always a tricky question, what you should tell people about yourself and what you shouldn't tell people about yourself. But it's funny that you mentioned that Aberdeen, the University of Aberdeen is where I went to school because uh, when I first moved to South Dakota, so I'm a transplant to South Dakota. I grew up in the Midwest, but not in South Dakota. And honestly, when I got the job at USF, I was like, South Dakota, like who lives there? Uh, turns out not very many people is what I've discovered. And um, but I, I have come to love South Dakota and um, feel like I am a true South Dakotan. But when I when I first got here, people would say, so where did you do your get your degree? And I'd say the University of Aberdeen. And they said, really, you went you went to Aberdeen has a university, the University of Aberdeen. I said, yeah. And we would talk and finally I'd say, like, are you familiar with Aberdeen? And they'd say, yeah, I was born there. And I was like, really? <laughs> and this, I finally this... I'd say, what are you talking about? And they said, what are you talking about? And that's when I realized there's an Aberdeen, South Dakota. So the next time someone asked me, where did you get your degree? I said, I got it in Scotland. And they said, really, does Scotland have a university? And I said, yes, Scotland has a university. What are you talking about? <laughs> And they'd be like, well, I was born in Scotland and I don't know. I'm like, I, I'm not following you here. It turns out there's a Scotland, South Dakota, which yep. I did not know. So now when people ask me where I got my degree, I say I got it at the University of Aberdeen, which is in Scotland, which is in the United Kingdom, which is on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. So you know, um, only thing, the, the thing you have to do for clarification <laughs> is say it in a thick Scottish brogue. Right, that Just would so, help. So people have <laughs> no... No confusion but, yeah, on the matter. I just remember saying, one, somebody saying to me, Scotland has a university. I'm like, where, where am I? Like, in what world do people think that Scotland doesn't have a university? But, um, but so anyway, I think South Dakota is, and South Dakotans are a little bit quirky. And I suppose the last year has proved that. But, um, but I'm going to interrupt you for, for a real quick story. Um, yeah, I had an experience um, going to Western Pennsylvania um, and, and hearing about this I don't know if it's a college or university called Edinburgh. Yes, yes. And I'm like, which isn't even spelled like, correctly. But right, whatever. right. It's spelled B O R O. Um, right. But I'm like, all these people are like home for the summer from Scotland. Um, <laughs> I had the realization that Edinburgh was in fact a Western Pennsylvania uh, college. Well, not only that, but Western Pennsylvania has a California university. Yeah. California oh, University and, of and Indiana and University, Indiana University right, of Pennsylvania, right. yeah. which makes Very perfect, confusing. perfect sense. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I taught my first year of teaching. I taught at the University of Dort, which is in Iowa. Um, but I grew up in a Christian circle that always this is bad. We we didn't know the historical significance of the Synod of Dort, so mm -hmm. we made fun of this university that was called the University of Dort. Um, so yeah, so uh, so so people would wonder what Dort was and that sort of thing too. But um, but yeah, so I had lived in South Dakota for my goodness almost twenty years now. Um, yeah, and I I uh, like you said, I'm married. My husband also has a PhD in theology, and he's uh, taught at colleges and at seminaries, and is now an educational consultant. I have two kids, uh, like you said, our daughters are in class together now, which is great and lots of fun. And um, we live on a little acreage and we used to have lots of animals, but a weasel got in among our rabbits and our duck and killed them all. So Ooh. I am using this winter to figure out how to build enclosures that will keep out the weasel. So that's what I'm occupying my mind space with these days. 
So what, uh, what courses are you teaching this year? Well, so our semester is over right now, but it, I teach every semester I teach two sections of Intro to Christian Thought, which is our um, basic Introduction to Christian the Systematic Theology class. So at USF, uh, every student has to take an Intro to the Bible class and then Intro to Christian Thought. So I teach Intro to Christian Thought every semester, two sections. And then this past semester, I taught uh, church history, which I teach every fall. And I teach a class in the fall called Christianity and Culture, which is a lot of fun. Um, then during interim this year, often USF uses interim to do kind of fun or creative classes. I'm so that's class. when you do your impractical theology. <laughs> yeah, right, right, exactly. <laughs> um, and it doesn't get more practical than this class, which is theology and Harry Potter. So that's my January class. And, um, and in the spring, then in addition to my two Christian thoughts, I'll be teaching uh, world missions and our senior capstone class. Yeah. Very cool. For, for um, theology majors. Yes, for theology majors. That's exactly well, right. Now, now majors at, um, theology majors at USF are theology slash philosophy, right? Um, so our department is called the, the theology and philosophy department. Okay. Um, but you can, we don't actually have a, we don't yet have a major in philosophy. We would okay. like to get there, okay. but we have a minor in philosophy. Okay. And then the two tracks that we have in, for majors in the department are a theology and biblical studies major or a theology and youth ministry major. Mm. Um, and then we have uh, a variety of minors. We have a philosophy minor, we have a um, theology minor, and we have a biblical studies minor. Now, I, I was a political science and history major, and I remember the, uh, the capstone class that I had in history uh, included a lot of really helpful stuff that would have been incredibly helpful in year one. Uh, <laughs> like they taught us like how to use the library and oh, like all sorts of yeah. things that would have been super helpful. Um, they, they were essentially preparing us for graduate school. Uh, what's, what's the capstone uh, class like um, in theology? Well, I co-teach it with um, one of my colleagues, Dr. Brian Gregg, and he is one of our professors of biblical studies. He's a New Testament scholar um, who got his degree at Notre Dame. And uh, so it's lots of fun co-teaching. I really, really like that aspect of it. And we have essentially divided the class into three sections. Well, four really, but three major sections um, where we look at three different um, important or difficult issues within theology, biblical studies. And in each of those units, we take turns teaching them. In each of those units, we try to look at the issue from the perspective of biblical studies, um, systematic theology, and uh, historical theology. So kind of trying to take the variety of classes they've had and say, okay, now that you kind of have been taught how to do biblical theology, how to do exegesis, how to understand a text. Let's apply it to this specific issue. Now that you've had some um, time, some classes teaching you how to do historical theology and how historical theology works, let's look at the history of theology with this particular issue and how does it give us more information about it. Now that you've had an understanding of systematic theology, let's look at this question systematically. And then finally, practical theology, what does that mean for the way the church practices um, this, its interaction with this issue um, on a day-to-day -day basis? So uh, our units are what is scripture, uh, human sexuality, and the problem of suffering. 
Um, and so we work our way through each of those units in that way. And then the last two weeks of class, we actually um, read uh, Richard Foster's book, Streams of Living Water, uh, which talks about uh, seven, I think seven, seven different or six maybe, it has seven chapters, but I think it's six different streams or ways in which Christians have practiced the Christian life throughout the history of the church. So like the incarnational stream, the social justice stream, the evangelical stream, um, the charismatic stream. And so kind of say, these are, the, these are the ways the church has practiced its faith throughout the history of, of the church. And so what can we learn from them? Uh, and each student has to do a, a, a little church project in a stream that they're not very familiar with so that they can kind of gain a little familiarity with that. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Because yeah, of course, of the fun. further the further on you get, typically you figure out what you like, and then you just do that. Yes, that's, that's exactly right. Wrinkle. <laughs> yeah, and and often what we like is just the thing we were raised with because we're used to it, and that's not bad at all. I mean, of course, the point of Foster's book is that these are all biblically based, theologically sound ways to practice the Christian faith, but they interact with each other and they complement each other. So whichever one you're most familiar with, that's good. You don't have to be feel bad about that, but learning to know and enjoy and, and benefit from some of the other streams um, is what it means for the church as a, to be a whole church yeah. and for us to be able to listen to the church as a whole, Absolutely. both, both in time and space, both of those things. Yeah. You're preaching to the choir as far as yeah, I, I think Anglicans <laughs> here. Yeah. Um, yep. So uh, being an aspirational cranky old man myself, um, I, I would be prone to uh, shake my fist and say, kids these days, you know, they're, you know, uh, whatever you might say about kids these days. However, um, <laughs> I've heard um, that, that one great thing about this generation that's in school now, that these people are who are in school and exiting school, is that they have a, um, a special heart um, for the marginalized um, that is really a gift to the church. And I guess this, this could be um, kind of tacking onto the idea of, of many different streams, but uh, would, would you, um, I guess, obviously no single generation is uh, all alike, but is that something that you notice? Is that, that like, they, they may have deficiencies in some areas, but in fact, they are a gift to the church in this way? I think that's true. I think um, the students that I have and that I've had in recent years um, do really have a heart for the marginalized or for the oppressed or um, just for the idea that um, that the church is more than themselves and the people who are like them. Um, and, and so that's really valuable, for example, in my church history class. And I can really give them, I, we, we can use church history to give them a, a more theological basis for that, that the church has included many different people throughout time, um, and that it includes lots of people with doing lots of things that we're not familiar with, but that adds to the richness of the church and its history and how we understand scripture. Um, and then I teach, uh, I teach world missions, which of course um, requires the students to have an openness to other cultures um, and to think critically about what it means um, for someone you know, from our culture, we're looking at this from our, our perspective, to go cross-culturally with the gospel. Um, what are ways in which that can be done badly? What are ways in which that can be done well? What does it mean that that's a command, not an optional thing? 
Uh, last time I taught that class, we read the book Silence, which was, which is, a, I think, a very difficult book um, yes. and uh, raises lots of difficult questions related to not just missions, but what it means to be obedient to Christ and what that looks like and how that's understood. Um, and so uh, students who take missions classes kind of have to be open to that, but also hopefully the class gives them um, a theological basis and a biblical basis for those kind of innate, that innate sense of empathy that they have. Um, and then the same with Christianity and culture, at least that's my hope, where we look at the culture around us and think critically about it, but without despising it or, um, or just embracing it whole hog either. Um, and so, yeah, I, I do think that they have, they do have that, that genuine sense of empathy and desire for justice. Um, and I hope that the classes at USF um, can help them uh, give that a biblical and theological foundation, um, as well as some critical apparatus. So it's not just kind of whatever someone tells them to empathize with, they <laughs> empathize with it automatically. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, which which is probably um, we'll probably get to when we discuss your book and that topic. I'm sure. Uh, shall we move on to the gospel? This week's gospel lesson comes from the book of John, chapter 1, verses 19 through 28. And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Christina, um, do, do you have some thoughts on this week's gospel reading? Uh, yeah, well, of course, um, you know, I think this is a, I think this is an interesting text because I, I usually, I think we all usually think about John as being the 
last of the Old Testament prophets. So even though he's in the New Testament, he is technically an Old Testament prophet, a prophet who comes before Jesus, pointing to Jesus. Um, and I really, I was intrigued reading it again. I was intrigued by that question. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no, um, because it reminds me um, of uh, my family's Advent uh, ritual, um, which my husband and I invented a few years ago, but it comes from uh, a story in, in First Maccabees, which of course is um, discussing, First Maccabees gives the history of how uh, the Jews threw off the rule of Antiochus and the uh, fourth and um, gained their temporary political and religious freedom. Um, but there's a great story about uh, how, of course, Antiochus had, uh, had um, desecrated both the temple and the altar, uh, the altar in particular, by building a pagan altar on top of it and then sacrificing uh, horrible stuff on it, namely a pig. Pigs, of course, were unclean animals. So he completely desecrated the whole temple and, in particular, the altar. And so when Judas Maccabee and his soldiers retake the temple, they don't, they don't know what to do, um, especially when they're confronted with the altar, because it is the altar of God, but it has also truly been desecrated. Both of those things are true. And so what they decide to do is they decide to dismantle the altar and take all of those rocks that, that, that were part of the altar and put them at a special place on the Temple Hill. And Judah says that they will wait until a prophet comes and tells them what to do with them. Mm. And so, uh, so the rocks of the altar are both really desecrated and really holy. Um, and so, so they don't know what to do with them and they have to wait for a prophet to come and tell them. And I, I wonder if, um, I don't know, this is just me speculating because I haven't dug into this passage enough to know, but that question, are you the prophet, which is a separate question from are you the Christ or are you the Messiah, is referencing that, that story in, um, from Israel's history. Uh, are you going to be the one to tell us um, what to do with how to be how to recover holiness in a desecrated time. Um, and I think that, um, that and, and John says, no, I'm not, but, but I'm, I'm looking forward to him. I, you know, when they say, who are you? He quotes Isaiah saying, I'm the one who's calling out in the wilderness. So our Advent ritual is every night in Advent to tell a story from the Old Testament and show how it's kind of a finger pointing mm. um, to Jesus and then put a rock on a, on a, on a mm. table that builds up it's like the rocks of the altar that we don't know what to do with but we're waiting for someone to come and tell us what to do with them um so john is is the last in that long line of people who are pointing away from themselves towards uh towards jesus interesting yeah and it's interesting yeah yeah that's a that's a really cool ritual i <laughs> uh, it's, it's it's interesting how um because we know who Jesus is, um, it's easy to look at at uh, the scriptures and assume that everyone had that messianic expectation. When in fact nobody did. Who, yeah. <laughs> when you know the the disciples uh, uh, prior or post resurrection were like, "Is now the time that you will restore the kingdom right. to Israel," which is of course a, a very much a Davidic uh, messianic expectation. But there were yeah. there were kind of multiple. It wasn't just um, the, the messianic expectations weren't just political um, and weren't just glory um, for for Israel itself, but in fact, uh, they're, 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 that was a big theme being occupied by Rome. Um, but 
so so they come asking him so this, this crazy like I, I would love to I mean picturing this guy this this wild hair this guy clad the way that he's clad um he must have been quite a sight and uh i don't know how much he differed from from old testament prophets uh, other old testament prophets as far as um not going to jerusalem not going to the temple but in fact being um doing his prophetic uh, work in the wilderness and then people coming out to him and receiving this baptism of repentance um but we've talked about just the literary structure of of the different books that we've encountered um, and here in John, many months ago, uh, as we encountered later readings from John, where we see Jesus with the famous I am statements um, that link Jesus to um, the Old Testament God, the God who said, I am. Uh, here we see uh, a very similar language in John saying, I am not. Um, it, is, it is almost the same thing, just with the, or it is the same thing, just with, with the simple word of not, um, which is no, um, it's no coincidence um, that, that John wrote it this way and, and that it happened this way. Um, and of course, uh, I, I do want to say something about Elijah. They're, they're like, are you Elijah? Um, what's that from? Well, in the prophet Malachi, uh, in, in Malachi 4, 5, uh, there's a promise. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. And as we've talked about Advent and our anticipation of, of, of the second coming of Christ, we know it is both great and dreadful. That's a topic that we've, we've discussed. I, I, um, I'm noticing that uh, lots of people get asked by the, uh, the, the, um, the priests if they're Elijah. Do you notice um, even, even in his dying breaths, Jesus gets asked <laughs> if he's Elijah. Um, what do they say he was, are you calling Elijah? Do they miss? Yes, yes, yes. Are you yeah, calling yeah. Elijah? So there's, um, there's, there's this sort of eschatological expectation around Elijah. Wasn't Elijah's appearing? Um, wasn't that believed to be evidence, um, evidence of uh, the coming of the Messiah? Elijah yeah, well, that's what I just said. Um, yeah. The pro yeah. yeah. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah right. before that yeah. great. Yeah. yeah. So I, I have a question about. Um, uh, we've seen tw two uh, two weeks in a row, um, two different. Uh, last week it was from Mark one, mm -hmm. um, and Christopher, you pointed out helpfully that the uh, Old Testament citation that is put in Elijah's mouth there is an interpolation of Isaiah nine and Malachi and some different things here, and we have. Um, here we have in verse 23, um, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So here he's saying something more explicitly. Instead of citing, instead of Mark has John the Baptist citing mm. Old Testament prophecy, and here he has John the Baptist saying, like, I am, he, I, I am the one who is being prophesied. So he's actually being like very specific. He said, no, I'm not that. I'm not that other thing, and I'm not that other thing. <laughs> I'm what you've read about in in Isaiah. So like I'm a category that hasn't yet occurred to you, which is probably kind of what Elijah remains to most Israelites during his life, right? A category they can't make sense of. that doesn't fit into their, their kind of preconceived. That they don't know what to make out of this crazy man baptizing in the desert. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And um, I think even today, I think, we don't know what to do with this idea of preparation. Like, what does it mean to prepare the way? Um, what does it mean? Um, 
uh, to call out all of Israel out into the wilderness to a baptism of repentance. This kind of inefficacious um, washing um, that all it was doing was preparing the way for Jesus. Um, Christina, why, 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 did, why did Jesus require a prophet like John to prepare the way for him? I mean, I, I, I don't know. My short answer is I don't know. Uh, my, my longer answer is, I mean, I think you're, you're, it's a question of, of time, and which I think is a really difficult question when it comes, I mean, it's a very advent question. Um, and why, why does God wait to do whatever he's going to do? And, and while he waits, things happen. Like he, 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 never, he never leaves us in a vacuum, but he does. There, God's plan of salvation requires patience. It requires lots of waiting. Um, I love that passage from First Peter. I always get Second, first, second Peter? Second Peter 3, where he says, God is not slow in keeping his promises, as some people understand slowness, um, but he is patient, not wanting anyone to be lost, but all to be saved. Um, and this is, in, this is in response to a question, you know, uh, hey, we keep telling people that Jesus is coming back and he hasn't come. So did we get that wrong? What should we do? And Peter's saying, no, you didn't get it wrong. Keep waiting. Um, and of course, this is what, you know, 30 or 40, 50 years after Jesus' resurrection, we're now 2000 years out. So how much more is that a question for us? Um, but, but God, but, but God's plan of salvation is a plan that requires patience, not just from us, but from God himself, God is patient. And I mean, I have to admit, I'm in, have long been intrigued by this idea of the patience of God. And that God's patience requires my patience, that my one of the primary ways in which I participate in the plan of salvation is to be patient. Um, and to, like, so the people that Peter is writing to are saying, why hasn't he come yet? And Peter says, God, God is patient, not wanting any to be lost. And I, I mean, there's a real sense in which he's saying, you are waiting for the fullness of God's people to come in. And of course, that's a reference to me and to you that if mm -hmm. that that those people waited for us, and that um, that when God asks, you know, my daughter often asks, you know, why she's wrestling with the problem of evil right now, and um, why doesn't you know if if God's saving us, if Jesus is coming back, why doesn't He just come back now? Like, why this delay? And that that Jesus' delay is not arbitrary or capricious. It is it is a it is a delay that it, that is making salvation bigger. Uh, and it's a delay that is for the purposes of salvation. And so it requires patience because there's a very real sense in which salvation has come to me. So I'm not patient on my own behalf. I'm patient on behalf of others, just like Jesus was patient for me. And then those people Peter was writing to, they were patient for me. Now it's my turn to be patient for others. Um, all of this is a very roundabout way of getting to your question, which is that God, that patience doesn't happen in a vacuum. God doesn't just say, well, when the time's right, I'll show back up. Um, but until then, you're kind of on your own. Um, that, that time of patience, God fills with people who are always pointing to him. Um, and I mean, I would say that's an act of grace, um, mm -hmm. that God gives grace to make patience possible. Um, so I don't know. There's some yeah. thought. Yeah, and I, I would argue um, that that it's not only uh, a grace that that those who don't know the Lord um, can come to repentance, but it's it's grace for you and I. Yeah. Um, that uh, and and that is the a part of the essence of this season 
in, in the, our readings from the book of Matthew leading up to the season as year A closed, um, we're, we're all about preparation. Um, but we had the, the, the foolish and the wise virgins um, of all the, a series of parables about um, preparation. And then of course, this Advent theme of, of, of preparation for the church, um, that this is a season for each of us to realize that this isn't just about them. It's about us preparing our hearts for the return of our absent master, um, who of course isn't really absent. Um, was it Bernard of Clairvaux who talked about um, uh, there being three advents, the first advent of, of him, of his, the incarnation. The second advent is, is him coming on the last day, but then like in between, like he comes into our lives and he's present to into us. Into our hearts, he, he says. Into our hearts, yeah. yeah. And, and that's through the Holy Spirit. So, I mean, I right. would say that he is really absent and yet he fills sure. his absence with the presence of the Holy Spirit um, because we don't want to, we don't want to deny yeah. Jesus' body, bodily-ness or anything like that. But but yeah, that his, that his absence is always filled with something. You, and and um, that's a good thing. Yeah, you touched on something uh, that um, has come up in conversations in our church and in our adult Sunday school, Christina, which is um, in the in the midst of Advent, as we read again these great prophetic texts, um, which would have been uh, meaningful to uh, the the listeners in first century Judea and in Galilee and in Jerusalem, and yet would have had an air of unreality. Um, and we, we talked about this, had a great conversation about uh, we're, we're, our, our Sunday school series this Advent is on the O Antiphons. We were talking last week on O Adonai, um, Lord of Might. And uh, these this prophetic Old Testament name uh, for, for Jesus. And the O Antiphon or O Adonai goes as follows. O Adonai and leader of the house of Israel, who appeared to Moses in the fire of the burning bush and gave him the law in Sinai. Come and redeem us with an outstretched arm. And as um, Adonai would have been used, the Lord of might, uh, as a prophetic uh, name in Isaiah, and as that would have been read in, in synagogues all across, all across Israel, um, there just must have been a, a disconnect and an air of unreality. How could this possibly be um, when, when Rome governs the entire Mediterranean rim, the entire known civilized world is under Rome? Everyone knows this. How can there be ever be a Lord of might that will restore the throne of David? Um, and yet you had a virgin with a secret in their midst at that very moment. <laughs> Um, the Lord's coming was imminent. Adonai was, a uh, Lord of might was imminent. And I think of every Advent now, I, I think of this in our Advent in 2020 with, which, I mean, for the rest of our lives, maybe that phrase, 2020, will be redolent of catastrophe and um, ho dashed hopes and um, kind of pinched expectations and uh, for the future and privation and disease and suffering and yet, who knows, <laughs> even in the midst of all of this, the Lord may be imminent, right? Our, our current unbelief, as we read these prophetic texts of the second coming, must in some way mirror Israel's unbelief in the first century. Um, and so... Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, I think that Christians are, are, are being asked uh, to, to embrace both patience and uh, eagerness at the same right. time. Um, and so we're, we're patient because, you know, God is patient. So we follow him in his patience and we don't know the day or the hour. 
And yet the day or the hour could come at any time, even this moment, this day, this hour, and that that really is the the solution to all all these things. So we patiently wait for that. So, I mean, I've thought, I mean, I've been thinking, I've thought about this a lot, but I think this year it's important as well, particularly important. But, you know, I think sometimes when we, when someone we care about, we love is old or sick or dying or something, sometimes I think we're tempted to pray that death will come to that person. Whereas of course, I think that we should all the more pray for the return of Christ. Mm. Um, death isn't the solution to our, our problems. And we have this kind of pious patience with death, which is not the kind of patience that, that Peter is talking about. I don't think at all. Um, we are, we are patient for the return of Christ, but we are also eager for the return of Christ and we anticipate it coming at any moment. So we should be ready, you know, and while today is still today, say yes to Jesus. Um, and so it's this real, I mean, and that's Advent, right? This great, Mm -hmm this great combination of saying yes to patience and yes to eagerness, both at the same time and recognizing the thing we're being patient with. Like it doesn't mean we should be patient with the things that God is impatient with. Um, We should be patient for God and for God's timing, but not patient with all the things that he has promised to overturn and overrule for us. Um, those things we should have a great eagerness to see their end and see their destruction so that God's, God's intentions can flourish and come to life and all of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great summation of Advent and, and just the themes of Advent. And it's interesting. We don't, uh, our focus on the gospel reading for each Sunday is, is sometimes at, um, at the expense of the other readings that we have. And so I'm glad that you mentioned second Peter. Um, because that was uh, one of our readings from last week, and and this this Sunday our our Old Testament lesson is Isaiah sixty five, which is mm-hmm. this beautiful vision of of what is to come. Yeah. This this undoing of of the very consequences of of the garden. Um, I'm just going to read a, a a part of it here. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. For be glad, rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. And I'm going to skip down to, to verse 20. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days for the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be a curse. They shall build houses and inhabit them. Um, and we see further on, they shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. Um, the wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the lox. And get this, dust shall be the serpent's food. Um, so the serpent from, from Genesis 3 is, is, is brought up. And um, I thought that maybe I skipped it over. Um, I thought there was something about the reverse of, of uh, pain in childbirth. But we see kind of a, a reverse of the curses of, of um, Genesis 3. Yeah, and I think, I mean, so it's like, you know, this in Second Peter, it's this exhortation towards patience, but of course, the very last prayer of the Bible is, come Lord Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that is, that, that is, we are patient towards that end, not towards mm-hmm. any other end. And the patience doesn't exclude eagerness. Um, it's uh, not at all. Um, and so those, you know, that picture in Isaiah, that's, that's what Jesus coming will bring he will bring all that with him. Um, and so that's the good things that we look forward to. And we're patient so that as many people as God wants will participate in all those good things. 
Um, so not just thinking of ourselves, but thinking of the whole scope of redemption, which is not only tons and tons of people more than we can imagine, but of course, the, the, whole, the whole created cosmos itself, as Isaiah says. Now, I can't speculate. In, I, I can't get into the minds of um, the scholars who put together the three-year cycle. But mm. I wonder if um, Mark, the Gospel of Mark, is often running so rapidly <laughs> that there's just um, not three different uh, separate texts that are um, proper for Advent, but that, that, that kind of they dive into the life and work of the, the adult Jesus which would be more proper for Epiphany, which is what we'll see the passages from Mark in, in Epiphany. And so this brief foray into John uh, for here for, for Advent, Advent 3, that seems to mimic uh, Mark 1. So we have kind of two John the Baptist Sundays. Um, mm -hmm. But this text from John 1, um, for people who are around church music, is uh, a lovely, and I'll include it, um, I'll include it somewhere, this is the record of John by Orlando Gibbons, one of my favorite 17th century English court composers, <laughs> Lambeth Palace court composer for Archbishop uh, William Laud. And uh, it's great. It sounds great in the King James. And I'll play it for you, uh, listener. So, so uh, how about how about you that. play that right now? We could do we could do that. Yes, we can do that as well. <laughs> and then this is a, a piece of speculation as well, with the the, the cryptic um, verse that. Uh, that Christina, you were fascinated by, art thou the prophet? Um, Deuteronomy 18 has this, um, well, has another cryptic prophecy. Uh, Deuteronomy 18, 15 says, um, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. This is Moses speaking, a prophet like me from among you for, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him for this is what you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb. And so perhaps uh, Hebrew scribes were wondering, <laughs> is there is there something eschatological about that? They're probably, Moses was usually, especially Leviticus and De Deuteronomy are usually pretty specific. They're not vague. So that would have been, I think, maybe striking, un strikingly unusual in its vagueness. Well, um, Christina, as I mentioned earlier, uh, wrote this book, The Significance of Singleness, A Theological Vision for the Future of the Church. Um, and so uh, we asked her to come on the podcast. And, and when we have someone who's an author, I don't say, oh, come talk about your book, because I'm afraid sometimes that they're only asked to do that and are tired of talking about it. But um, she, she felt like this um, has a really good intersection um, with, with Advent. And so... Uh, Christina, would you explore that for us? Uh, yeah, I think, uh, I mean, my, I think what the Bible teaches us about singleness, and by singleness, I should clarify that I mean, Christian singleness uh, is, has at its core faithful celibacy, um, and um, that Christian singleness is very advent um, in that it 
is something that looks forward to a future that has not yet fully arrived. But that future is genuinely breaking into our present through Jesus, his death and resurrection, and through the gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, and so Christian singleness um, is a sign or a picture of God's future. Um, it's, like, it's like John the Baptist, you know, when he says, I'm a voice crying out in the wilderness. Um, I think singleness is, is kind of like that. Singleness, Christian singleness is a picture um, that points towards God's future, towards where God is taking the church. Um, and, uh, and it's, it's, and, and living that out can feel like sometimes can feel very lonely or feel like you're in a wilderness sometimes all by yourself. Um, and yet it is a real pointing towards God's future. Um, so I think singleness has, Christian singleness has embedded in it, um, uh, signs of God's future. Um, but a future that isn't fully here yet. Is it is it innately lonely uh, singleness or uh, yeah, for, for Christian or or is it lonely because the church treats single people as broken until like as something to fix? I think it's I think it's mostly the second one. Um, I think that uh, I think that that um, the church and and right now I'm talking primarily about the Protestant church. Uh, in the Western Protestant church, because that's the church I'm most familiar with. And that is honestly the audience that my book is aimed at. Uh, the Catholic church, I would say, has done better on this, although not perfect, but certainly better. Um, that the church, the American Protestant church, um, privileges marriage and a biological family um, in a way that I don't think is warranted by scripture. Um, and that I think at times verges on idolatry um and 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 the natural consequence of that is that singleness is uh, looked down upon it's assumed that the person who is single there's either something wrong with them or something wrong with their environment that they're not fully mature that they're um, not sometimes even we might kind of make these assumptions that they're not fully human yeah. um and a lot of that i mean my my argument in the book is that the american uh, protestant church um, has largely absorbed the secular eth sexual ethic um, and then just kind of put a Christian gloss on it. Uh, but the underlying assumptions are all the same. Um, and that leads to a really bad theology, not just of singleness, but honestly of marriage and certainly of sex in general. Um, but that said, I do think there's a loneliness to it because um, I think it's mainly because the church has not understood singleness properly or lived it out properly. But at the same time, um, I think we are, as Stan Gren said, we are created for community. And one mm -hmm. of the most uh, obvious and natural forms of community is um, marriage and then the children that come from marriage. Um, and when we deny ourselves that natural community, um, we, I think, really make space for the supernatural to break in. But at the same time, it, it is a genuine denial. And there's some genuine consequences of that. I mean, I, I, I think singleness, Christian singleness is a lot like fasting. Um, food is a good thing and we are right to enjoy it in the right way. Um, but fasting from it is a way of showing, it's not food that keeps me alive, it's God that keeps me alive. Mm -hmm. um, 
And so I can fast from food as a way to point towards God's all sufficiency. Fasting does more than that, but I think that's part of it. Um, and so when we deny ourselves food, we are hungry. Um, and, and that's okay. That's just the way our bodies naturally work. So when we deny ourselves or when just circumstantially we are denied the natural community of marriage and children, there is a hunger, I think, that has to be dealt with for most people. I think the church has done a terrible job of helping single people deal with that. And so that, so that's, a, that's my major concern. But mm-hmm. even when the church does it well, I don't think it means that that hunger goes away completely. Sure. It's just, it, just can be, it just can be understood and lived with in a totally different way if the church can, can understand it rightly. You yeah, mentioned- and, and if I understand your, your book correctly, in, ch- in chapter one, what you're arguing is that a spiritually healthy single person, um, in fact, gets something um, that many married people don't. And that is, to, they understand better um, what it's like to fully rely on on God, um, where uh, people um, who put kind of people essentially turn marriage and relationships and sex into idolatry, um, into idols, and um, a single person who who comes to terms with Christ being uh, their their fulfillment of of the Christ being sufficient for them um, are are in a much more spiritually healthy place than than um, than married people who uh, feel like their spouse will fulfill them in every single way. Yeah, absolutely. That's the argument I'm making. That there is something to be learned in and through singleness that um, that we don't that marriage is that marriage is not a natural place to learn those things. Marriage is not the natural classroom for those things, whereas singleness and celibacy is. Um, I'm always, I have to admit, I always laugh when people say that marriage is one of the best places for sanctification, like marriage is God's plan for how a person gets sanctified. And I'm like, have you tried living a celibate life for 10 plus years? I'd say there's some sanctification that's going to happen there. Um, so so kind of this idea that this uh, idea that sanctification happens primarily in having a spouse and children, of course, sanctification can happen there, but it gives the impression that the primary place sanctification happens is in the community of marriage and biological children. And I just don't think that's the way scripture talks about it. I think scripture says very clearly that um, singleness and celibacy is a place where God teaches us things that we, in a way that they are not going to be easily learned other places. You and so single that. people have something really to contribute to the life of the church. They have a gift to give the church. They've learned things in a way that other people haven't learned them. And that's okay. Not every single person in the church has to learn every single thing or learn every single thing the same way. I mean, that's the whole idea of giftedness, that we each have different gifts. And I don't want to say that single uh, that whole gift of singleness stuff is not, that phrase is so misused that that's not what I'm talking about, but simply the idea of a body and that each Part contributes something to the whole. Um, and the idea that, that the modern American church has is that singleness doesn't contribute anything is so deeply wrong. Um, that singleness and what, what single people learn and grow in singleness, um, that that is a huge contribution that the church is just neglecting. Yeah. And I had a question I, I want to ask you later about that framing singleness as a, a dignified vocation. Yeah. Um, not not as a sort of unmarried like a, a, a right. negative concept yes. like 
there are people that are married and people that are unmarried, but rather right. as a positive vocation. Um, but it, it, the moment you said the idolatry of marriage and family, um, you might have grown up with this resource in your house, the dominant resource in evangelical Christian households in the 80s and 90s and perhaps even beyond was this organization called Focus, Focus on, on the Family. The family. Yeah. If you read her and, book, you'd notice that she says that in her introduction. <laughs> it's just un unbelievable, right? Not focus on the cross, focus on the sacraments, mm. focus, mm -hmm. focus on the yeah. word. It's, I, I mean, obviously there was something that was unself-aware. So it was, it was just the water that everyone was swimming in at the time. Uh, do you want to say anything isn't about there, that? Well, yeah. And, and Chris, maybe, you know, isn't there a radio station in Sioux Falls whose tagline is faith, hope, and family? I think so. Which yeah. means they've taken the the three theological virtues and substituted them for one of them. Like every time I hear them say that, like ninety six point seven, whatever it is, oh, these things, family, these I'm three things like, oh, remain. Yes, and the greatest of these is family. Family, yeah. Even though I mean, and that could not be more unbiblical because Jesus explicitly says that in the new in the resurrection there'll be no giving or taking in marriage. I mean, it's so so. Yeah, I mean, Kirk, I totally agree that focus. I mean, this idea of focus on the family has just become, I mean, it's just, you know, and I think this started in the Reformation when essentially Martin Luther and yeah. others threw the baby out with the bathwater when they were, they were making what I would consider good and right criticisms of the Catholic priesthood and the idea that, and, and that the priesthood had gained a power and authority that it shouldn't have. And of course, Luther is proposing the priesthood of all believers as a, as a resistance to the, what the priesthood of the Catholic church had become. And, you know, I'm all for that. I'm a Protestant because of the priesthood of all believers, if nothing else. Um, but but the, the Catholic Church's uh, insistence that priests not be married, um, that kind of, when Luther and others were, were ditching all the priestly stuff that they didn't like, they, 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 they threw celibacy in with all that bad priest stuff. Um, and I think that was a mistake. And I think that the Protestant churches in the West, including America, have never uh, thought seriously or critically about that, that move. Um, and so the family has become, the family is seen as the building block of not only society, but here's our problem, the building block of the church. And that is just false, plain and simple. Um, Jesus is the building block of the church and the Holy Spirit uh, grows through the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, but the idea that kind of the family is a mini church and the church is modeled after the family could not be more backward. Mm. Mm. Uh, and it cuts out the place of Jesus. And, it, and, and I think maybe even more importantly, it cuts out the role of the Holy Spirit in the church, that the family kind of becomes Jesus on earth in this interim Advent time instead of the Holy Spirit being uh, the way in which we access Jesus during this time. Um, so I, I do think that it, you know, often verges on, if not crosses over into idolatry, uh, an understanding of God's plan for his kingdom and his salvation that is based on our, uh, based on our own desires, wants, and our own natural humanity instead of recognizing the church as a supernatural institution that is born out of Christ's death and resurrection and grows by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's yeah. interesting. Um, this summer we read in Matthew 12, uh, an interesting passage um, 
I'll just read you a couple of verses. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hands towards his disciples, he said, here are my mothers and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Yeah. There's a sense that the church actually smashes <laughs> our, our DNA ties. Jesus very anti-family things, right? Yeah. I mean, like, I don't want to at all say Jesus is anti-family. He's not. But he privileges the church over the family. And he does not consider the church dependent on the family. Uh, and that's crucial. And, and I have to admit, I, you know, I'm, so I'm a mom. And if my, if I ever said, if my kid ever said that to me, I'd be like, oh, I'm your mom. Like, right. I'm the one who, like, that is a really, I mean, I've always heard this from Mary's point of view, like, what the heck, right. kid? Like, I'm the one. But I just recently read a book that, that brought something else to my attention, which I think is really good when he says, who, who is my mother? Who am? And he stretches out his hand to his disciples, but he says, he, what does he say? He who does the will of the will of my father. Yeah. yeah. And of course, that's what makes Mary special because when God called on her to do something, she heard and she obeyed. So he's not denying Mary, but he's saying that Mary is an example to follow, not because she's his biological mother, even though of course she is, but, but that that happens because she heard and did the will of his father. So what he says doesn't exclude Mary from relationship to himself. Rather, it says that the relationship she has to him is primarily one of hearing and believing, not of pregnancy and biological birth. Even though both of those things are true, which I, which I just find really interesting. Um, and so the, so Jesus, so I, I, and I always wanna be clear about this, Jesus is not opposed to family. He's not opposed to marriage. He's not opposed to having children, not at all. But the church, and the and the future resurrection takes priority over those things and that we're related to that the relations that we have um that are eternal that go into the resurrection are relations that are based on on uh faith in christ yeah not now you see that at the foot of the cross in john's gospel right, yeah. right. mother i was gonna say that yeah <laughs> i was gonna ask christine about that where um we, we see um at the, at the foot of the cross, yeah, behold your mother and behold your son, where like in Christ, in, in this new kingdom, um, we, we have this new family. Um, and, and in that sense, um, we have many spiritual mothers and fathers and, and many spiritual children, um, that there's a new community. Um, and in, in Matthew 19, and I'm sure Luke has the story, but I'm looking at the Matthew one, um, following uh, the rich young man who comes to Jesus, uh, Jesus says, everyone who left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Um, and, and it seems to me that th these things are separate. He's not saying in the afterlife, you'll receive mansions and family, but like in Christ, you have this new community. You have, you know, like where um, you can go out with, with, with no extra robe and no coins or anything. And you have many houses like in Christ, like you have many houses you could stay with you. You have this extended family. Would you say that that's accurate uh, way of, of seeing that? Yeah, I, I agree completely. And, and of course, this is why I think the church's understanding of, of singleness is so important and so valuable because for singleness to be what it's supposed to be, the church has to recognize it and value it properly. It's not singleness is not just a me and Jesus thing. 
um, singleness right. is is for the church and is made not only livable but exciting by the church and by the way the church responds to it. So yeah, I absolutely think that Jesus is not just talking about the resurrection that you'll receive all these things, even though that's true. Um, he's talking about right here and right now that yeah, absolutely that singleness. Um, I mean, this is one of the things I think singleness reveals to us in this very graphic way, that our first and truest family is the church, not our biological family. And of course, if our biological family is part of the church, we're, we should be super thankful. Um, and, it's a, and it's a terrible thing when our biological family and the church are not, are, are not together. Um, but uh, the true family, the eternal family, the family that goes into the resurrection is the church family. Um, and, and that starts right now and then goes into the resurrection and is only made better and fuller and truer in the resurrection. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, I know that you chose the term singleness, uh, for, for a very particular reason, although you, you seem to use celibacy interchangeably. Um, yeah. uh, uh, my, my bishop and his wife have taught a great deal on, um, they have this whole <laughs> fully alive, um, annual conference, um, which I, I want to talk about a sermon that he gave on celibacy to help us transition a, a little bit um, topics here. Um, because anyway, I'm, I'm going to share the reason he doesn't use the term single. He's tried to um, remove that. So this isn't a critique of you because I, I know that this is not critiquing you, but for, he said, I've tried to stop using it because I've used this before. And he says, who is single? If you think kingdom of God, who is autonomous? Who is on their own? Indeed, I argued in the first sermon, you know, in this series, I'm, I, I transcribed his sermon, uh, that Jesus isn't on his own. No, he's in total interpersonal communion with the Father and the Holy Spirit. To call someone single is, and I, even I use it sometimes, it actually speaks of a very, very noxious weed that has grown up in the very troubled soil of the American fixation on the individual. And we in the church have let that come in and talk about people as single when they're not single at all. Everyone is profoundly connected and in union with God and one another in the kingdom of God. And so this is part of um, this large series um, that, that he started in 2017 that has led to, um, we are a profoundly confused culture um, that doesn't know what to do with sex and gender. Um, and it's, we have a coming crisis. Um, uh, you know, uh, many young women are, are, uh, see, mm. are starting to realize, like, I don't wear the, the typical gender um, that's kind of placed, expectations that are placed on me of women. And so many, more and more adolescent and, and young adult women are identifying as non-binary. Yeah, and I read an article- some spooky social science numbers. On yeah. yeah, well, and I read an article recently um, on uh, Andrew Sullivan's Substack where, where um, he had, uh, what was her name? I should know her name, but uh, she was writing on how um, in academia, in kind of secular liberal academia, how it's actually problematic to, to self-identify as a lesbian. Um, that, that, um, that that's not, that that's too specific, um, and excludes so many other kind of sexual preferences. Um, and so I, what's that? I just said, it, it's like the kind of sexual revolution is eating itself at this point. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, I, I think that you and your book and, and the Christian view of, of celibacy and singleness has a lot to say to a culture that is very confused about gender identity and sexuality. And I just, that's, I'm not really asking a specific question, but like you have a lot to say. I, I would like to just segue to, to talking about a culture that doesn't know what sex and gender and sexuality is. Yeah, I mean, so like you said, my, the first chapter of my book is essentially a critique of both uh, the Christian, the so-called Christian sexual ethic, and uh, and my main critique is that it is essent the, the so-called Christian sexual ethic is essentially the secular sexual ethic. They're one and the same, and both of them are based on the idea of human beings as autonomous individuals, which is just just a completely unbiblical understanding of what it means to be human. Um, and then and then everything in the sexual ethic flows from this idea that we're autonomous individuals. And that's what makes us fully human, my autonomy and my individuality. And that's always linked with consumerism and privatization. Um, because as individuals, all we can, the only way we can relate to others is through consuming because we're separated from them in all other ways because we're autonomous individuals. So relationships happen through consumption, through consumerism. And then privatization, because I as an individual have to always, the, the primary right uh, privilege, whatever in in this society is the is the right to do with myself what I want, my body, my choice type of stuff, um, and that doesn't just apply to abortion; it applies to our whole entire lives. And so I have to have the right to privacy, uh, in the sense that I can do what I want without anyone telling me any different. And this understanding of what it means to be human, out of this arises a very specific sexual ethic that is deeply confused, in my opinion, because of course it's not an accurate understanding of what it means to be human. And so we've, we've, we've taken a definition of, of what it means to be human that scripture, and I would say experience, tells us is deeply flawed. And then we've built a sexual ethic on it. And so we shouldn't be surprised that when we build a sexual ethic on an understanding of humanity that's wrong, we get a sexual ethics that's deeply confused and that has no ability to even to, to have even internal consistency, let alone anything else. Um, and so, you know, this idea that identifying as lesbian is is now becoming um, politically incorrect or something is is so bizarre uh, to me, um, and and shows how that this movement has has to keep moving towards some kind of end that isn't actually there because it has first and foremost misunderstood what it means. Well, to is there Gnosticism lurking underneath there? That is well, the, yeah. the total disassociation and I, between my your body and, I were and... Just, yeah, we were just talking about that, that this is a new form of Gnosticism um, and a denial of um, biological of, essentialism, basically. Right. Yeah. And, and a denial of what of the of the of the bodiliness of humanity, right. which, of course, is going to end up in a denial of the bodiliness of Christ. Like, so this is not yes. just this is this is at the center of what it means <laughs> to confess Christ. Um, and so I think um, I think the the emphasis on on autonomous individuality um, has been basically absorbed and embraced by the church. Um, they've put it, and so and so we have built a sexual ethic that's based on all those same assumptions. We've put this Christian gloss on it that we that's called marriage, um, and then we think, see, we're different from the culture. We're Christians; they're not. Um, when really we're exactly the same. We just. I mean, to be kind of blunt, we just require a different condom when we have sex. Our condom is marriage, theirs is an actual condom, but you know, that's what makes sex safe. 
um, marriage makes sex safe for Christians, but it's still the same old, same old. Um, and I think it results in all sorts of problems for the Christian church and all sorts of theological inconsistencies and dead ends. Um, and I think we see that right now in the American church dealing with all of these sexual issues and the, and churches are confronted with the fact that they either kind of have to say yes to all these sexual uh, moves that the culture is making because they don't have a basis on which to say no. We've already said yes to all the assumptions that got us here. Or we keep saying no, but we don't have any good non-hypocritical reasons for doing that. We're just saying, hey, I'm heterosexual, so I get to have sex. You're not, so you don't. Too bad. Like, that's not biblical. That's, that's not consistent. That's, you know, we've already said yes to all the assumptions. So that answer is just pure hypocrisy. And so I think that the way for the church to deal with the sexual issues confronting it right now is first and foremost repentance um, of a willingness to embrace the world's sexual ethic that because essentially it's convenient to us and it lets us have what we want when we want to have it. And doesn't require those of us who are heterosexual um, to be confronted by the challenges of the kingdom and the gospel when it comes to our sexual sex life. Hmm. I have, uh, I, I had asked you, uh, not ask you, <laughs> I had said I was going to ask you and now I'm going to ask you. <laughs> um, what do you think about um, the way that some current authors are now um, want to redignify signal, singleness by talking about it as a vocation instead of like a negation, like not married, but rather right. a positive vocation with, with certain dignified ends and, yeah. and a vision for flourishing. Uh, yeah. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Um, yeah. I mean, I think that can be a very good thing. I mean, it's going to, it's going to depend on the basis for which they're doing that. But I mean, like I was saying just a few minutes ago, I think before the church deals with sexual issues, they need to deal with all these underlying assumptions about autonomy and individuality, just okay. like the sermon you just read, Chris. Um, that's what's underneath it. And once we deal with that, um, that, that assumption that humanity is at its core, this autonomous, individualized, privatized, consumeristic thing, um, then it paves way for for um, us to understand singleness rightly, and that singleness has this um, important, valuable, beautiful place in the kingdom of God. So it can be a vocation in the sense that, and that, and that word can mean different things. I mean, it can be a vocation kind of in the patristic sense of that, of that word when related to celibacy, that I have a calling towards lifelong celibacy for the sake of the kingdom of God. Um, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 7. I think Jesus talks about it in Matthew 19. And certainly the patristic authors and Augustine and those folks uh, talk about it quite a bit. Um, and, but I think many of us currently, and not just currently, but over the last millennia, um, experience singleness through circumstance, not through calling, so to speak. Um, so for example, I didn't get married until I was 30. Um, and in kind of the evangelical subculture that I was in, uh, that's old. Uh, right. very old. <laughs> and, and so I had eight years uh, of being an adult in the church without being married. So I, so I'm tracing from when I graduated from college when I was 22 to when I was 30. And um, I, I mean, I'll freely confess I wanted to get married. I just, 
the opportunity did not present itself, at least not in any way that was appealing to me. Um, and so, um, so I would say I was single and celibate by circumstance, but could still take that as an opportunity to participate in the kingdom of God in a way that others didn't have that opportunity or others had said no to that opportunity, which was fine. Um, and that I was being given the possibility to know things about God that I wouldn't have known otherwise and to experience God in a way that I wouldn't have experienced him otherwise. And I got to the place where I, I think I was genuinely thankful for that. At the same time, when, when Nathan came along, I was very happy to say yes to him. So it wasn't a vocation in the sense of a lifelong calling, but it was a vocation in the sense that God gave me an opportunity to experience his kingdom and his provision um, in a way that was valuable, good, and true, and that, that, that was accessed through that singleness, not just through a generic Christian yeah. life. So the, the author and um, the, the individual that, that has introduced this concept to me is a, a gentleman by the name of Peter Volk, who runs uh, Equip Ministries. Are you familiar with him? I, I think I'm Tennessee. familiar with Equip Ministries, although yeah. I don't know his name. Yeah, so uh, the, the Roman Catholic Church for many years had a really effective way of providing vocational singleness for gay men, which was mm -hmm. the priesthood. Yeah. And uh, in Protestantism, we don't have that. Um, and, and he wants to redignify vocational singleness for, for gay Christian men. Because on the Protestant side, we, we just don't have ways of talking about that. We look at our shoes, we hem, we ha, we end up saying foolish things, we offend people, we drive them away from God and the church. Yep. Yep. And uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm, I want to be, I'm, I want to be careful about saying singleness is for gay people, no. um, because I, no, he's a gay I, man I that's not who wished he had been clearly right. spoken to, right? He was instead wounded and damaged, right? Exactly. Um, so I think, uh, I think singleness needs to be. Um, re-envisioned and, and kind of given this dignity of a vocation um, for everyone, no matter what our, our sexual orientation is. Um, and I think that's crucial. I mean, I have to admit as a college professor, um, I, I see young women in particular, it's probably true for young men too, they just don't confide in me as much. Um, young women who are desperate to get married before they graduate because they feel like that's what they're here for. Right. That's why their parents are sending them to a Christian college. And what, what can their life be if they don't get married and start having kids? Like they have no vision for their future apart from a husband and children. And when that doesn't happen, it creates a genuine spiritual crisis because they've been taught their whole lives. This is what a woman's Christian life looks like. If I can't have that life, how can I be a Christian woman? Like there's no vision for their future in the kingdom of God, apart from a husband and children. And I think there's a, I don't know, but I, my guess is that for same sex attracted people, there's a lot of that same feeling. Like yeah. the vision of my place in God's kingdom is predicated on marriage and, and sex that creates children. And if I can't do that, either because it just never happens, like the young women who come and sit in my office, 
or because I'm same-sex attracted or whatever, that leads to spiritual crisis, questioning of who God is and what God is asking from me. And we assume that, and, and we're teaching these people that this is God's plan for how you participate in the kingdom of God. So when that plan doesn't come to fruition, I don't know what my place in the kingdom of God is. Do I even have a place? Mm-hmm. And so um, putting for, I mean, I, I, I don't use the word vocation so much, even though I think that's a good word. The word that I tend to use in, the, in my book is a vision for God's future. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and singleness helps give us a vision of God's future that is fuller than simply marriage. Um, marriage gives us a vision of God's kingdom. Absolutely. We see marriage as a figure of God's kingdom and salvation in scripture. That's super important. But I think alongside that scripture gives us a vision of God's future that has singleness as its picture. And I think uh, singleness also needs to be a vision of our future that we can present to individual people and say, you are a part of God's kingdom because of your relationship to Jesus not your relationship to another, a person of the opposite sex or your ability to have functioning reproductive system um, and, and, and one that's popping out kids. Um, and, and that is why singleness is so crucial because singleness points to the sufficiency of Christ, yeah. mm-hmm. um, that he is the reason I have a place in the kingdom of God. And and that's it. That's enough. That's all I need. And that vision of singleness, um, I think, can create a sense of vocation, can create a sense of privilege and excitement that I, as a single person, a celibate single person, can participate in a visioning of the kingdom of God to the church and to the world that is big and truthful and exciting and adventurous. Well, this you've just articulated sort of uh, through a side door. Um, the, uh, the theology behind uh, the perpetual virginity of Mary, which is what need had she um, once she had true full communion with God. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm officially, uh, for the sake of this podcast, agnostic on the matter. So, uh, but um, uh, what was I going to say? Oh, uh, another thing that you seem to be alluding at is that um, singleness does allow you to have this this special focus and special union. I, for some reason, I've had my eyes open in the last 12 months to two great single authors of the medieval church, Julian of Norwich and Hildegard von Bingen, who could not have written um, what they wrote. Uh, had they have been, not, not to denigrate, <laughs> I love my wife, not to denigrate wives and mothers, but they couldn't have, Julian of Norwich couldn't have been Julian of Norwich um, had she have been, you know, housewife of Norwich. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in my book, the three examples that I give, um, like, so I, I, I think the church needs to, um, needs to remember the single saints of our history. And Amen. so I use three of them in my book, and they're all women. And I've had the criticism several times, like, why didn't you include a man? Um, and, and I've had some reviews that say, well, you know, as a man, I was disappointed that there wasn't a man. Like, what does this all mean for me? As Go read the New Testament. It's all written by St. Paul. <laughs> like, well, I've spent my whole life learning from men. Maybe you yeah. all could learn from a woman yeah. once or twice. I don't know. But, I, but the other reason, I mean, so obviously I find it obnoxious when people say that, but, yeah. Um, yeah. but, the, but the, there's this assumption, well, she has three female saints, so it's a book for women. Um, but 
um, my my main point is that in women we see um, women, especially from times past, highlight the nature of singleness and the value of singleness because for millennia culture has said that women apart from husband and children lose value and and are in a dangerous place women can't survive in societies very well without a husband and or children especially male children um and so the the women of god's history highlight in a special way god's provision god's value god's sufficiency in singleness it doesn't mean he doesn't do that for men, but because of the way society has treated women, women highlight that in a special and unique way. Um, so if it's true for women, basically it's true for everybody. Um, if God can do this even for a woman in the fourth century, in the, in the third century, then he can, he can be sufficient for anyone in any time and in any place. Um, so now I can't remember what prompted this, me, my rant. On women and singleness. Well, um, <laughs> I was getting excited because I thought you were going to mention the three women um, that that uh, you highlight in your book because I think Kirk would really like this. Yeah, so my three women are Macrina um, from fourth century. She's the older sister of uh, a bunch of people, including uh, Basil the Great and Gregory of Nyssa, who are two of the Cappadocians, and um, Perpetua, who was yeah. a martyr in 202 uh, AD and is just one of my all-time favorite people in the world, and uh, Charlotte or Lottie Moon, who was a Baptist missionary to China in the 19th century, and who's fantastic and amazing. Wonderful. Yeah, yeah. and um, so at the very beginning of this discussion, I, I asked um, a question about the, uh, the loneliness, like, is singleness lonely? because it's innately lonely or because the church has conditioned us to, to be taught that it's like that we're broken somehow. Um, so the, the problem isn't just that um, the church has devalued singleness and, and has uh, essentially portrayed it as something to be fixed. Um, but we also have not given a positive vision of singleness. That's what I hear you saying is that we need more of that. And you do that in your book and, and we need, um, probably to preach and to teach about um, a, a positive vision that God may be calling you um, to, to singleness for a season. God may be calling you to singleness um, for the kingdom. And, and that's that you are a complete person, that you're like, you are a complete, whole, healthy person in Christ, apart from um, in, in any sort of marriage or children. Um, that's what I hear you saying. Um, yep. Yeah. I have one not, final question. Not, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and, and I know we're going long and I'm grateful for your time. Thank you. Thank you for uh, um, this. This has been great. Uh, how do we, Christopher, Christopher has a friend who wrote a haunting book five or six years ago. Jonathan V. Last wrote What mm. to Expect When No One's Expecting. And we have, I don't think it's on many people's radar, a looming demographic crisis um, birth rates are below well below replacement and have been for native-born Americans, that is non-immigrant Americans. And the immigration spigot has kind of shut off in the last five years. And so now immig uh, birth rates are just plain low, like just below replacement rates. Um, so let's leave, a leave aside the secular arguments about economic models and economic growth and pensions and all that stuff, which is all that's haunting as well. Um, for the church, um, we are people who are people of hope, right? So we have children because we're future oriented. 
We believe that it's in God's hands and the future will turn out. Um, so can we walk and chew gum at the same time? Can we talk about this? Um, uh, the fact that um, there are no children because no one's having children and we need to talk about it because it's going to be a really big problem without shaming people be because as you say, uh, singleness is growing as well. And there are just a lot of single people around and without feeling, making them feel pressured. As, as you note, um, when people come and confide to you, they feel pressure. How, how do we talk and chew gum with those two well, things. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I love that you say we have children because we're people of hope. Um, I don't know if you've read, there's an essay by Stanley Harawas in, in the Harawas Reader, and now I'm not remembering the name of it. But anyway, he he talks about why why we have children. And, uh, and he talks about when he was at Notre Dame, he would ask people this, and people would say, you know, because it's an expression of our love or because we don't want to be lonely or because blah, blah, blah. And he, and he like shoots down every one of those, like, that's a terrible reason to have a kid. Right. It turns out they are all terrible reasons to have kids. Um, and, uh, but he finally says that as Christians, we're people who have children because we have hope and, um, and that people without hope come to the logical conclusion, yes. well, I'm not going to have any kids. And I remember when we first got married, I was kind of terrified of having kids, um, both because the world is a difficult and dangerous place. And I, you know, the thought of, of, of having a child who I knew you, I would love with all that I had and that, that child, anything bad could happen to that child. And I wasn't so much concerned for that child as it was for me and my own heart that would break in that moment and how I was terrified of having children. Um, and this essay by Harawas was very convicting to me because it told me essentially that my hope was in my own ability to keep my child safe. And I knew I couldn't do that. So I, I didn't want to have kids even after I got married. And, um, and it really convicted me that, that I had an issue of whether I trusted God or not. Um, did I trust that God would love this child as much as I loved him or her? Um, did I think that God could, did I think God was worth was trustworthy in putting my child into his hands. Um, and honestly, I, my husband and I decided to have kids as an act of trust and faith where I said, I'm going to act like I trust God, even though I kind of don't all the time, <laughs> you know, I believe help my unbelief type of thing. Um, and I have to admit, I felt that very strongly this year that, you know, I don't know what's, and, and I don't, and COVID, but the political situation, everything, you know, it just, it, it, it unveils what's always there. It's not like mm -hmm. this year is, I mean, this year is bad in some ways, but it's also just an unveiling that our lives are always unstable and they're always uncertain. And it takes a second for everything to be lost. Um, and that's terrifying. And so we have children in hope, um, hope that not that, they, you know, not the Whitney Houston, I believe the children are our future, <laughs> but hope that God is our future and God will, will make things good and right through the power of resurrection. But in that same essay, Harawas says that we embrace celibacy in hope as well, mm. that it is not, the children are not our future and they will not, and we do not need to have biological children for the world to, um, to be the place that God wants it to be. Um, so I have to admit, I think, I think that we both have children in hope and we are celibate in hope and that, um, that I don't think the population crisis has any theological weight to it in this discussion. 
Um, in other words, I'm not saying it doesn't matter. It does matter. And, and the, the economics of it um, and, and the social health of it, all of those are important things. Um, but theologically, for how I live a life of Christian discipleship, um, me having children is not crucial to the kingdom of God. Um, and um, and I, I, I mean, my hope is not in if I can have enough kids, then I secure the future of, of, my, of my social security check and right. my and my health insurance and blah, blah, blah. So I need to, I need to not only have two children, but I need to have two more just in case. Um, so I need to replace myself. Plus I need to replace those two other idiots who aren't having kids. Um, you know, so that, I just, I just think that's not a Christian obligation. Um, we could argue all of us as political scientists that maybe it's a social obligation, but I don't think it's a Christian obligation. And I don't think, and I think that the theology of hope, in fact, argues against having children for that reason. Right. It doesn't argue against having children. It argues against having children for that reason. Um, and so uh, when I first got married, someone asked me, so when are you guys going to have kids? You know, that's always the next question. When are you going to get married? When are you going to have kids? Um, I was like, oh, gracious. Um, <laughs> and he said, you do know it's your obligation to have children and especially boys who can grow up to be elders in the church. Holy moly. I was like, how did the kooks always find me? Like, what uh. the heck? <laughs> um, I was like, well, um, you know, I don't remember how I responded, but, but this kind of idea that my value to the world is my reproductive organs. Um, which I think uh, is, I mean, is that a misinterpretation in, in, is it first or second Timothy where it says women will be, redeemed Saved by childbearing yeah like yeah, is, is that where they is that where they get that idea that idea it's this weird mix of women shouldn't be in church leadership combined with well we got to give women some value because i guess they're made in the image of god so <laughs> aha, their value is in providing cheap people who will be in church leadership um mm. i don't know honestly i don't know but but that's a little extreme, but there are plenty of people who are kind of saying, like I've read when I was working on my book, I read multiple articles kind of saying like Christians are losing the reproduction race with Muslims. Like that's literally how it was framed. So it has to do with these kind of social economic issues, but also it becomes this mish missional uh, issue as well. Yeah. Like Muslims I, mean, I admit are that stuff, that stuff has kept me up at night. Like I, I think <laughs> about that though. I, right. though I, I mean, do think, like, I do think we have it. We have the causality flipped. Um, yes. So you don't have you don't have a bunch of children because it's your duty. Um, when there have been fruitful periods, fruitful eras of the church, it's been a an outgrowth of faith and hope. Right. It's been an right. expression of that. Right. And so my my response to the growth of Islam should not be have five. More <laughs> right. It should be am I how can I speak to my Muslim neighbors or maybe go mm. to a different part of the world and share the gospel of Christ. That's my response to, yeah. uh, to, to any Muslim I might encounter and to the issue of Islam. Um, and, and so again, I think we just kind of have this sense, and this is very, this kind of secular sense that, that the, that the future depends somehow on me right. um, making certain decisions right now. And those that could be a wide variety, but included in that is my decision to have a certain number of children. Mm -hmm. um, and that just is contrary to the understanding of biblical hope. 
yeah. which is not that the kingdom of God is based on the things I do. It is based on the work of Christ, both in his death and resurrection and in his return. Yeah, that is really good. And I feel like that could be a topic of, of an entire podcast that we could talk about um, Christ's kingdom and, and our, our place in that and our, and our hope. Hope, hope is a good word. Um, everyone, please go buy The Significance yes. of Singleness, uh, preferably from a local merchant, but Amazon does sell it. Thank you, uh, Christina, for, for coming on the podcast. Um, uh, shall we turn to prayer? Okay. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Let us pray. Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, you sent your messengers, the prophets, to preach repentance and prepare the way for our salvation. Grant that the ministers and stewards of your mysteries may likewise make ready your way by turning the hearts of the disobedient towards the wisdom of the just, that at your second coming to judge the world, we may be found a people acceptable in your sight. For with the Father and the Holy Spirit, you live and reign, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Almighty God, give us grace to cast away the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now in the time of this mortal life in which your son, Jesus Christ, came to visit us in great humility, that in the last day, when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the living and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal. Through him who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Lighten our darkness, we beseech you, O Lord, and by your great mercy defend us from all perils and dangers of this night. For the love of your only Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Christina. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Next, Next week, week, Kirk. <laughs>